One of the interesting things I think about our culture is that at the same time we seem to be drifting away from organized religion, we're also at the same time almost becoming hyper aware of rules and standards. Uh, we shame people on social media. We we rant about things that go against what our uh, current societal norms are. Uh, those of you who are on the neighborhood website next door see people doing this all the time, whether they're mad about door-to-door salesmen or upset about dogs relieving themselves in their yards and why, how people shouldn't let them do this. There's, there's always something people are complaining about. There's some rule people have broken and we want to call them out and we want to hold them accountable. Uh, I saw this recently in the New York Times. There was an op-ed written by someone who is very much pro-life. And then in the comments section, so many of the comments said something along the lines of, it's immoral to deny a woman her right to choose. And so you see this very strong sense then of of right and wrong. And this this is wrong for you to deny a, a woman the right to have an abortion. Uh, you saw this uh, with Kevin Hart recently, who was going to host the Oscars and then had to step down from that because of comments that he made in the past that were perceived to have been homophobic. And so he was, he was called out on this and he was shamed and, and you can't host the Oscars anymore. And so it's just interesting uh, that in our country where we're, we're kind of we're down on religion, we're all about the law. We're all about the law. And you need to conform to our law. And we'll shame you if you don't conform to our law. And forgiveness feels like it's very hard to come by, actually, in our culture. Uh, And I I think the natural question that arises in the midst of all of this law is, says who? Says who? Uh, You say that it's wrong or even immoral for me to hold position X, Y, or Z... And my question is, well, says who? Uh, This was illustrated in the television show, The Good Place. I don't know if any of you are watching The The Good Place. It's basically a show that's supposed to be about heaven. And the main character uh, goes to The Good Place, but it turns out she's really not supposed to be there. There was a slip-up, and she's not really a very good person. Uh, And so they're trying to figure out, well, how can they kind of keep this covered up, and how can she learn to be a good person and not have to go to the bad place. And so her soulmate, who she meets there in heaven, is trying to, to, to teach her to be good. And he's actually, I think he's like an ethics professor or something. So he's going through all this philosophy about how can you be good. And he's teaching her Aristotle and Aristotle's ethics. And, and she finally says, well, well, that's all great. But why does Aristotle get to define what good is? Like, who put Aristotle in charge of making the rules of, of what's right and wrong? That's a great question. You know, why does, why does any ethical teacher have more moral authority in the matter than you or I do? And so that raises the question, is there a law, is there a moral code that comes from an authority that you and I are actually obligated to submit to? Is there anyone with that kind of authority that can impose their moral code on us and tell us what the good life and what the moral life actually looks like. Now, Christianity teaches that there is a creator who imposes moral obligations on us and that these moral obligations are actually a reflection of his character. 
the Bible then summarizes those moral obligations in a couple places that, that you probably know pretty well. We just alluded to one of them. One of them is in Matthew 22 where Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The question that arises from that is, okay, but what does it look like to love God? How do I carry that out? Flesh that out for me. Uh, What does it look like for me to, to love my neighbor? Do I just kind of make that up as I go? No, what Jesus is doing is he's actually summarizing an earlier moral code from the Bible, which is the Ten Commandments, which is what we're going to start looking at uh, next week. The first four commandments show us what it looks like to love God. The second six commandments teach us what it looks like to love our neighbor. And so uh, the, the Ten Commandments are these summary of how God would have us as his creatures to live. You might even say they're a map that leads us to the good life. You know, you, you read the Bible and it's filled with these passages that tell us that blessing comes with keeping God's law. That obey, obedience leads to blessing. That this is how our Creator designed us to live. And, and, and if we want to uh, live the good life, we will live in conformity to these commandments. But here's the thing. Uh, as you and I try to follow the map so to speak, um, we find ourselves getting lost a good deal. Uh, We find that here are these standards that we're supposed to live up to, and in living up to, we're supposed to find the good life, but we find that we're actually not very good at keeping these commandments, that that we stumble frequently. And so what do we do then? If we look at the commandments and we find ourselves failing to keep them, what do we do at that point? You know, it's, it's that time of year for New Year's resolutions. Do we just kind of say, all right, we're going to do the Ten Commandments, and this is the year I'm, I'm going I'm to I'm do these well. Like, do we just make a resolution to try harder to be better? How do we use the law as believers in Jesus Christ? What's it there for? How does it help us? Uh, here's what I want us to see today before we plunge into the Ten Commandments next week. I think for us to to use the law rightly, we have to understand, yes, the law is a map. It does show us how to live. But before we can use that map in the right way, we have to understand that the law is also a mirror. It's a mirror that that we hold up and that shows us our own uh, sin. It shows us our own failure to keep the law in order to drive us to Jesus Christ. And that's foundational of the whole thing. So that's what we're going to think about today. Look with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15. And then we're also going to read one verse from John 14. This is God's Word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? 
It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under, under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And then Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, help us this morning as uh, we try to lay some some groundwork and, 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 and work through a little bit of a difficult passage uh, to think about the, the rule or the role of your law uh, in our lives. Uh, Father, I pray that the law would not be something that simply hangs over us and condemns us, uh, but that it condemns us in order to lead us to Christ uh, and that we would flee to Christ and find life uh, and joy. So I, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a little bit of context for this passage. You're kind of diving into the middle of Galatians here. Uh, The Apostle Paul planted churches in Galatia, proclaiming the message that a person is made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Your works contribute nothing to it. You're right with God simply uh, through faith in Jesus. That's the message we've proclaimed as we're have planted Grace Presbyterian Church. And so that's the same message Paul was proclaiming in Galatia. And people believed the gospel and came to be a part of those churches there. After Paul planted those churches, those false teachers who were known as Judaizers came in and they said basically, yeah, this faith in Jesus stuff is good and you need that, but if you really want to be right with God, you need Jesus plus Uh, You need to keep the Old Testament dietary laws. And you need to be circumcised. And basically, you need to keep the whole law of Moses. And so, Paul, in this letter to the Galatians, is calling out the false teachers. And he's telling the Galatians, don't listen to them. That's not how this works. You know that's not how this works. And then he hammers this home that justification, that right standing with God is through faith in Jesus plus nothing. And he hammers it home all through the book of Galatians. That's the gospel. You get to the good place, not by being good enough, but through faith in Jesus, the only one who was good. So, in chapter 3 earlier, he has hammered this home by reminding the, the Galatians, hey, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by working for the Holy Spirit or was it by faith? It was by faith. And then he says, your forefather Abraham, how was he justified? He was justified by faith. And he says, in fact, anybody who relies on keeping the law to gain right standing with God is actually under a curse. Like this this law keeping is a path to salvation. Doesn't work. It has to be through faith in Jesus 
who actually was cursed for you on the cross. And so this is, this is the way of salvation. And so that brings us to verse 15 in our text this morning. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or sets it aside once it has been ratified. Excuse me, annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Uh, Paul says, alright, let me give you one more example. I'm, I'm going to give you one more example that, that faith trumps works. That, that faith is what is foundational here. I'm going to prove to you, as he says in verse 18, that the inheritance promised to Abraham comes not by keeping the law, but through faith in Jesus. So what does he say? Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, we read that and we think, well, Paul wasn't familiar with the American legal or political system because we change stuff all the time. Uh, and, And... commentators are there's a lot of speculation about what type of covenant he was talking about but he's referring to to some covenant in that culture that once it was made it couldn't be altered and we know we have covenants like this today Uh, if if you buy a house once you buy a house you can't unbuy the house Uh, if you make a will once you die uh, you can't come back and then alter your will for those of you who are fans of Dalton Abbey you remember uh, in, in the first season, the plot driver is that the estate can only go to the male heir of the earl once he dies. Even though there's all this money that he has that his rich American wife brought into the relationship, she's not going to get that when he dies. It's going to go to the male heir. And so that, that kind of drives season one. It, it, it couldn't be changed. Now maybe it gets changed later. In that, I quit watching after season one, so I'm going to hope that works. Um, but, but in any event, the, the argument Paul is, is making is like, look, if, if there are human covenants that can't be changed, if you can't go and change this, you better believe this covenant, this promise made by God, can't be changed. Even the giving of the law, like as, like as momentous as this event is, the, the giving of the law by God to Moses, the Ten Commandments, can't change the nature of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Alright, so what what was that? What did God promise to Abraham? That that, that this covenant that can't be set aside or changed by the giving of the law. Well, if you go back to, and we're going to look at this in a second, but if you go back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, you see that God comes to Abraham and He promises him, He says, I will make you a great nation and I will give your descendants this land and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, Paul understood that the first thing that that promise referred to was the land of Canaan, which God was going to give to Abraham's physical descendants. He, he wasn't ignorant of the Old Testament. He was an expert in the Old Testament. But he also knew that there was more going on. There's more loaded into that promise than just Abraham's descendants getting a piece of real estate in the Middle East. Um, Paul understood that God had said that in Abraham's seed, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so that couldn't happen just in Palestine. That was a, that was a reaching the world kind of promise. And so Paul understood that both this idea of land and this idea of a seed or an offspring that these things had not just physical significance, but they had a spiritual significance as well. That God wasn't just giving land away. 
And he was actually given a spiritual inheritance. He was giving salvation to all who would believe in Jesus Christ. So look at verse 16. Now the promises, great nation, lands, in you all the nations will, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now the offspring, you can use some of your translations to probably say seed. That's a collective noun, right? Like, how do we use the word seed? Like, I, if I plant one seed, I say I planted one seed. If I planted 20 seed, I don't say I planted 20 seeds. We, we continue to use the, the collective noun when we, we use the word seed. Paul understood how that worked. All right, He understood that the, the Greek word there is a collective noun just like ours is. And he uses it that way later in the, in the chapter. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul knew how to use these words. Uh, he knew that Abraham's offspring or his offsprings were going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But he's trying to emphasize here that ultimately this promise to Abraham pointed to one offspring. And that the way all the other offsprings, if I could put it like that, the way that they were going to be blessed is as they were connected to this one offspring. Right? You see what I'm saying here? There's going to be a bunch of offspring, but multiples, but the only way they're going to get blessing is if they are connected to this main offspring that, that, that um, God is pointing to in Genesis. And who is that? Verse 29 says, and if you were Christ, Okay. And so the offspring is Jesus. So let's think about this. Let's think about the argument he's making. God made a promise to Abraham thousands of years ago. Abraham received that promise by faith. Uh, he didn't have to do anything to get what was promised. He didn't have to go cut down 5,000 trees. He didn't have to go buy you know, 50 donkeys or sell 50 donkeys. He just believed God. That's all he did. God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God. Stop. 430 years later, the law comes. The law that came 430 years later doesn't change the promise that God had already made to Abraham. Abraham was promised an inheritance that would come by faith. The law doesn't change that. The inheritance still comes by faith. The inheritance for you and me still comes by faith. God doesn't ask you to do anything to receive it except to believe in the offspring, to believe in Jesus Christ, to look to Jesus Christ, the one who was cursed on your behalf in your place. That's the gospel. And so the gospel, which we talk about all the time, is, is good news for us, right? It's good news for me, for you, in the midst of our disobedience, in the midst, midst of our failings, in the midst of our shortcomings, that we can be right with God, that we can receive the Spirit, that we can be certain of eternal life, not by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished on our behalf. Now, 
some people you kind of say to that, well, that sounds great, but and I wish I could like give me some tangible proof for that. Now, look back to if you got a Bible, look to Genesis chapter fifteen. If you don't have a Bible, just listen to me, uh, or, or check out your phone app. Genesis fifteen. God is, is making these promises to Abraham. Okay? And, and, and here's what God says. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you, are able, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So Abraham believes God. He's like, show me something here. How do I know that I'm going to possess this? So keep reading verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So in the Old Testament, one of the ways you can make a covenant was, and this is the reason they actually called it cutting a covenant, is like if you were getting ready to make it a, a binding agreement with somebody, you would get a bunch of animals and you would cut them in half and you would like lay half of the body on this side and half on the other side. Okay? And then the two people would walk down between those dead bodies, those dead animals. And what they were saying was, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, then let what happened to those animals happen to me. If, if I don't keep my word, let me be cut in half. All right? You imagine if we did weddings like that? Like walked up through the dead animals? All right. So anyway, Michael thought that was funny. Um, so, so sorry. So that that's what's happening with, with the covenant. So, look at verse twelve. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Right now, skip down to verse seventeen. Uh, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. All right? And so notice what's significant, significant here. Um, what did I just say? How's the covenant work? The two parties to the covenant, they walk between the pieces of dead animals. They're saying, If I fail to keep this, let the curses fall on me. Who doesn't walk between the animals in this covenant? Abraham doesn't walk through. Abraham's like passed out on the side or something. And, and, and God is the only one that walks through the, the pieces of dead animals. And, and that's such a contrast. You think about when Moses brings the law down, the people say, we'll do this. In this case, Abraham has nothing to do with this. And God passes through the dead animals. And he says, I will do this. I'm going to make sure this covenant is kept. And when you fail on your end, the curses that are supposed to fall on you are actually going to fall on me instead. I'm going to be cursed for your failure to keep this covenant. And that's what the cross is about. 
the curses come upon God himself for our failure, for Abraham's failure to keep the covenant. And, and God is saying, it's not up to you. It's not up to you, it's up to me. And so we're hammering this home, right? God is teaching that, that right standing with me, the inheritance, the blessing of, of intimate fellowship with God does not come by works, it comes by grace. It comes through faith. Uh, grace makes it depend on God. Works makes it depend on you or me, but it doesn't depend on you or me. God is, is saying, quit, quit looking at your house like, like it's you're on some episode of Fixer Upper and that your life just needs a little bit of work and then everything's going to be okay. It's not about your efforts. It's not about your resolutions. It's not about your hard work. It's not even about your obedience or disobedience. It's about Jesus and what he's done for you that you can't do for yourself. That's the gospel. Now, you say, oh, all right. Why did you say we were studying the Ten Commandments again? Well, let's keep reading. Back in, back in Galatians, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And, and don't worry about those two verses. Um, is the, is the, in the law, then, contrary to the promises of God, certainly not. For if a law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's the thing. Why do we talk about the law? Justification by faith is really hard for us to get to get. For us to really believe. We, we keep wanting to make, a, make it about us. Like we continue to want to make it about us. And so because of that, some of us despair because we begin to realize that, that we're never going to be good enough. And we're convinced. Like we, it, we just can't get it. We think it's about us measuring up. Others of us, we, we tend to kind of look at our performance through rose-colored glasses, and we compare ourselves to other people who aren't doing as good as we are, and, and we're pretty good at being disciplined and working hard, and so we say, well, bring it on, I can, I can do this. And so God gives us his law to show us, no, you can't do this. You can't save yourself. You can't do what you're supposed to do. The standard is beyond you. The law shows us that we're like a guy with, with no arms and no legs and asthma trying to climb Mount Everest. Okay? That would be a great episode of the History Channel, but that's not going to happen. All right? We're like, a, we're, like a, we're like a man vomiting blood covered in sores who's trying to get into the neonatal wing at Farmer Regional Hospital. They're like, no, man, you're, you're not coming in here. The law imprisons us. It, it shuts us in our own sin. Paul says here that the law is like a, a teacher or a, a schoolmaster. It's like a schoolmaster who, who was, you know, the, the disciplinarian, the guy who walked around with a rod, and if you fell asleep, he'd whack you upside the head with a rod and say, wake up and pay attention. We had a, we had a teacher in elementary school. Uh, those of you who remember actual chalkboards with the big black erasers, um, like if you were talking in class, she would throw erasers at you. All right, and I think we need to bring that back, actually. But, but um, 
Yeah. And, 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 but, but that's what the, the law is like. The law is this disciplinarian. Right? It is always on you. It's always beating you up. It's always saying, man, you've got to get yourself in gear. And so then the law is not a recipe for you and I to follow to get God to like us. The law is a schoolmaster that beats you up and even kicks you when you're down. Now, it's interesting in that light, you know, Jesus comes. And Jesus is full of grace and truth, right? And yet Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, you know the commandment about murder? It's not just about externals. You murder people in your heart and you're not supposed to do that. And that commandment about adultery is not just about the physical act of adultery. It's about the lust of your heart. And that's a breaking of the law too. And so if anything, for those who think the law is simply about externals, Jesus actually deepens the impact of the law. And so as, as you and I come to the law, as we come to the Ten Commandments, you, you might say that not only is this a map showing us how to live, it's also a mirror that shows us that we don't live the way we're supposed to live. And if that weren't enough, the law even seems to aggravate our rebellion. And you know how this works, right? I just made some fresh cookies. You need to wait 30 minutes before you eat those, and you can only have one. And then immediately, like, I want a cookie now, and I would like three, thank you very much. Like, the, the, the simple act of someone telling me, no, don't do that, I'm like, oh, no, I, I think I, I want to do that. Uh, Paul put it like this in Romans 7, For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Um, Eugene Peterson once said that in his church, they had, in the parking lot, they had these great big arrows painted on the pavement to show you which way the traffic flow was supposed to go. And he said there was this one lady who always went against the traffic flow. Like she always ignored those arrows. And finally he was talking to her about this and she said, well, no, I wasn't being careless. That was actually a deliberate act. And this is what she said. No one by painting something on the asphalt is going to get to decide which of the two lanes I would get to use to take me to my place of worship. Well, you can't tell me which lane I'm going to. I'm going to worship God. I'll use whichever lane I darn well please. All right. And then she says, besides, it makes me feel, it makes me feel good to assert my personal free will against impersonal regulation. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I want to do. And so... So here's this law that comes in, which is supposed to be a map to show me how to live. And yet at times it kind of stirs up my rebellion because of my, uh, because of my sin nature. And, and as I look at this and as, I, and, as I, and I look at the law, it begins to function as a mirror 
showing me my failure to keep the law. As I put it like this, the law is like the heart test that reveals, like you go into the cardiologist and they run a test. And it's the test that reveals the true condition of your heart. The gospel is the medicine you take to be made well. All right? The law shows us our sin in need of our, a Savior. The gospel points us to that Savior in Jesus Christ. So again, well, why the Ten Commandments? Why the law? Well, if you're not a Christian, I, I pray that as we go through this series, that the law will begin to show you how much you really need Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, my prayer is that this will remind you how much you need Jesus Christ. That there's, there's never a point in the Christian life from the beginning to the end that we stop needing Jesus. We never get to the point where we can say, oh, okay, I get it. I got this now. From the beginning to the end of the Christian life, we need Jesus. And the Ten Commandments remind us of that. Now, let me say this. Sometimes as a Christian, and some of us have more sensitive consciences than others. And so sometimes the, you know, the law convicts us. And for some of us, it just is like, man, it's just beating us up. And we can kind of begin to just kind of wallow in our guilt and in our shame. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to stay there. Like, you don't have to stay there. When, when the law convicts you, you confess your sin, yes, but then you run to Jesus. You don't have to stay in the ring and keep taking that beating. Like, if I just stay here and be miserable long enough, then that's what I'm supposed to do. No, you, you repent and you believe the gospel. And you run to Jesus Christ. You believe this news that Jesus was cursed for you. And then you rejoice. You know, sit there and, and, and wallow in it. Sometimes you have to say what Martin Luther said to the law. Luther said to the law, stop law. You have caused enough terror and sorrow. Like that, I, I'm done with you. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And so you're going to have to leave me alone. And sometimes Satan is the one who comes in there and kind of presses down on us. Ah, you know how you did that. And you know how you did that. And that's how you kind of have to remember the, the lines, you know, of, of how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Satan accuses me in vain. Satan, you're, you're accusing me in vain because I am only a child. I'm a child because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so as, as we're going through the commandments, or as you're reading the scripture and the law convicts you of your failure, the answer is not to run to the law and say, well, right, this year, this year I'm going to do better. Uh, if you run to the law and, and, and you take that attitude, then you're kind of like somebody, like you, you've been outside working and you get all dirty and you go into the bathroom to clean up and you look in the mirror and you see how dirty you are and you rip the mirror off the wall and you try to scrape dirt off with the mirror. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it's like. That's what it's like when we try to clean ourselves up with the law. That's what it's like. The answer is we, we, we hear the law, but we don't turn to the law, we turn to Jesus. We're like the child who comes in from playing and they're dirty, but they don't know how to work the sink yet. And so they look to their parents and say, will, will you wash my hands? Will you make me clean? And so the law shows us our sin for the purpose of driving us to Jesus Christ. Now, and I'm going to do this quick. The second reason 
we have the law. The second reason we're going to go through the Ten Commandments is if you're a Christian, Jesus does say, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So if we're a believer then, and we love Jesus, we're going to want to begin to figure out, well, what does it look like to love him? And, and how do I follow him? And so Jesus says, I've saved you. And now this is what it looks like for you to live well. This is what it looks like for you to, to live the good life. You're not doing this to earn salvation. You're, you're in already. But, but this is what it looks like for you to live a life that's going to be good for you and, and pleasing to me. It's what it looks like to love God. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. This is how you experience blessing in your life. I, uh, I knew someone, someone once who had, had an affair and they returned to their spouse uh, and I was asking them, like, what was it that got your attention? And the person said, you know, I was just sitting there and I said, God is never going to bless this relationship. Like, he's, he's not for this. This is, this is wrong. This is not the path to blessing. And he repented and, and went home. Uh, the law shows us what it's like to live in a way that's good for us. As a believer in Jesus Christ... The law shows you your sin. It drives you to Jesus. Jesus pronounces your sin forgiven. And Jesus points you to the law and says, Look, this, is, this is how I want you to live now. This is how I want you to live now. I'm, I'm giving you a map. And I'm going to give you my spirit. Uh, and my spirit is going to strengthen you. And my spirit is going to convict you when you stray from the map. And I'm going to give you the gospel. And I'm going to make sure that that gets proclaimed every week, every Sabbath, in word and in the sacraments. And so you can hear every week, as you've messed up again that week, you get to come back and you get to hear, wait, wait, this is not about me. This is not my works. This is about what Jesus has done. And my sins are forgiven in Christ. Jesus every week says to you, yes, your sins are forgiven and you belong to me. The law drives us to the gospel, and we rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that you would cause the law to do its work, um, and that looks a little bit differently in each one of us this morning. Um, Some of us probably need to come under the conviction of the law. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you might do that. Um, some of us, Father, are, are, feel a little beat up by the law, and, and we get stuck in, in uh, our own guilt and thinking it's about us. I, I pray that we would hear very clearly the, the gospel message, that we would see very clearly that Jesus has come uh, to save lawbreakers. Uh, and that includes each one of us. So, Father, help us to to hear the gospel this morning in the midst of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.